I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 26th. In this episode, ARM had a very good week. A new supercomputer debuted as the fastest in the world. And for the first time ever, the fastest supercomputer in the world uses ARM-based processors. As if that isn't enough to crow about. Apple announced new chips for its Mac products. Those will be ARM-based too, with ARM displacing Intel. We'll talk with Tyrius Research Analyst Kevin Crewell about what it all means. Also, Mercedes-Benz just selected NVIDIA to provide the entire stack for its vehicles that will be coming out in 2024. NVIDIA is notorious for overdoing it on the hoopla, but this time, just maybe, the hoop Velocity is merited. In 1993, a group of researchers put together a list of the fastest supercomputers in the world. Eventually, they began publishing the list, now commonly referred to as the Top 500. The latest version of the Top 500, the 55th version, came out on Monday. For years, Supercomputers in the top 10 have been built using processors and accelerators from a small, elite group of chip companies that includes IBM, Intel, and NVIDIA, and recently AMD. It was only last year that a supercomputer built around ARM-based processors cracked the top 10. Nobody expected a machine based on ARM to skip to the very top. One just did. The machine is called Fugaku. It was built by Fujitsu and the Raikon Research Institute. It's the first supercomputer built in Japan to take the top spot since 2011. It is 2.8 times faster than the previous number one, which was built by IBM and runs at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Fukaku wasn't even supposed to be up and running for another two months, but the researchers wanted to help solve problems associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, so they accelerated the development schedule. It was announced at a show, held virtually this year, called ISC 2020. So that was one good piece of news for ARM. The other was Apple announcing it would stop using processors from Intel for its Mac products. Apple didn't even mention ARM during its announcement, but it didn't have to. The industry already knew where the technology was coming from. Nonetheless, that's two prestigious bits of business for ARM, and they both came on Monday. We called up Kevin Crewell from Tyrius Research to qualify ARM's very good day. All right, Kevin, the ISC 2020 show, a bit of a surprise with a uh, brand new number one supercomputer in the world, right? Well, it's not a complete surprise. Everybody knew that, well, not everybody, but I mean, a lot of people in the industry knew that um, Fujitsu was working on an ARM design that's fully custom with uh, scalable vector extensions uh, that included acceleration features and many, many cores. So it was designed specifically for this application. And we were just kind of waiting for the new list to come out and waiting for them to uh, announce it. There was actually a rumor that there was a second system uh, that might have made the list, the top 10 list as well, but that didn't show up. It was a prototype system. So only the the uh, final system uh, made it 
to the list. But uh, yeah, it's uh, displaced the um, IBM top two systems. And Japan now has the number one supercomputer based on Linpack performance numbers in the world. That's uh, now it's ARM based. Uh, which isn't uh, necessarily a surprise. We've had supercomputers based on ARM processors crack the top 100 a couple of years ago, but still to take over the number one, I mean, that's got to be, uh, that's got to be at least a PR coup, if nothing else. Oh, it's, it's uh, great news uh, for ARM. I mean, as I was telling you earlier, it was sort of a red letter day for ARM on Monday. Um but uh, yeah, the, the the interesting thing is it doesn't use GPU acceleration. Uh, these are huh. ARM cores with uh, the scalable vector extensions, and uh, they don't have GPUs to accelerate the the, the, the performance numbers. So that's uh, a real departure from most of the the top systems, which have uh, featured, uh, especially like the two IBM systems, featured NVIDIA GPUs for a lot of the. Uh, number crunching. Wow, that's actually really fascinating. So, is it an alternative architecture where they, uh, where they, where they use different techniques to get the speed? Or, I mean, could they conceivably pair uh, their processors with GPUs and get even faster? Well, I mean, we are talking about close, to, you know, four hundred teraops of operation, pretty close to half uh, a exa. Uh, exaflop. So they're they're not an exaflop system, but they're almost halfway there. So I don't think they need the GPUs at this point. Uh, they they get where they where they need to be. Um, in addition, uh, it's also very power efficient. So it wasn't the top power efficient system, but uh, it's it's pretty high up on the green five hundred list. Uh, so it's I think it gets all that they need to get done uh, without putting a GPU in, inside the system and. Um, for some applications, uh, that's you know that's plenty fine. In fact, it was funny uh, in the top 500 list, about half of them, almost half of them, are Intel systems without any acceleration, just uh, just CPUs, just Xeons. So you know you can get a very performance system just with CPUs, just not you know it's hard to get to the very top. Pretty wild. Does that uh, does that say anything about the GPU business? I mean, does that uh, does that suggest that there are? Uh, I mean, there's clearly other ways to get the speed. Um, I, I mean, does this uh, suggest a bifurcation in the in the supercomputer business, the HPC business? I wouldn't say so because if you look at the the, the next generation part uh, supercomputers that are coming next year, uh, the exascale systems from uh, AMD and Cray and Intel, those all have GPU acceleration to it. So uh, GPU acceleration is still a go-to um, technique for getting the high-performance uh, Limpact numbers that uh, and the high-performance double-precision compute that uh, supercomputers uh, need. Um, but one of the things that's changing, though, is that um, they are starting to look at different workloads besides just you know, raw compute. Uh, we're starting to add AI uh, into the workloads. And in fact, one of the things interesting about the uh, Fujitsu uh, supercomputer system is that it's also optimized for not just 64-bit floating point, which is what supercomputers like, but 32-bit and 16-bit floating point. So it actually is uh, fairly effective on machine work, uh, machine learning workloads, not just on the heavy-duty uh, Limpact 
crunching numbers. So we're going to see more of that uh, going forward as as the the idea is that supercomputers aren't just, you know, brute force, crunch the numbers kind of machines, but also have to be intelligent, process the data intelligently and make sense of the, the raw data that it produces. Right, right. That, I mean, that was kind of uh, the point of uh, these these two you just mentioned that are coming up next year and the year after that, Summit and Sierra. Um, they're, they're being and if, uh, evaluated and, for, for AI workloads. Yep. And uh, I would say Frontier would probably also be too, and and that's actually uh, Cerebus, the uh, the guys who are building that that giant, uh, you know, chip on wafer, you know, the entire wafer that's chip. Uh, the Department of Energy has picked up a couple of their systems for the very same reason uh, to be able to take the data that they generate on these supercomputers and make some intelligent decisions and uh, and find some you know elements of uh, patterns in it uh, that that only AI can do at, at scale. Yeah, yeah. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, ARM. We were talking about ARM, and you mentioned yes. that ARM had a, a red-letter day. They got involved with uh, one of those little consumer electronics companies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys that make the, those little, you know, phones. The I, I things? Yeah, yeah. I, we call those I something or other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You mean Apple. Uh, the fruit, oh, right, the fruit yeah. company. Yes, yes. Uh, the other big news for ARM, which happened to drop on the same day as Supercomputer uh, news, was that uh, Apple finally, after uh, years of this being hinted at, uh, announced that they are going to be migrating their Mac product line uh, from Intel processors to what Apple calls Apple Silicon, but what we know is actually an ARM-based design used in the iPhones and the iPads. So... Um, Initial uh, units are going to be available late this year um, uh, at Max that are with the, the in, uh, they'll call it Apple Silicon. Um, and then over two years, they're going to migrate uh, the entire Mac product line to their early internal silicon at Apple and, uh, and obsolete the uh, Intel parts. So that's, that, was a, that was also big news on Monday. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they can possibly get away with calling it apple silicon even though we know it's arm uh, right. arm has been uh recently been very public about having a program whereby they are going to support some of their uh most important customers uh as they um heavily um uh, heavily customize arm mm-hmm. parts isn't that, you, that correct yes and so this is definitely, I, I think, a, an opening to this. And, I, and it, maybe this is a good reason why Apple is calling it Apple Silicon instead of ARM, mm-hmm. because uh, it opens the door for Apple to um, make some optimizations or some changes to the architecture, as maybe extensions, because uh, Apple owns this. It's a vertical ecosystem. They own the software. They own the developer uh, tools. And now they all own the silicon all the way down, including the Mac line. They do already today for iPhone and uh, iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's maybe uh, a, a, you know, a hint that Apple's going to do some other optimizations to the ARM architecture that's specifically just for uh, Apple uh, to further differentiate themselves from uh, the x86 PC uh, products. Uh, certainly, they've indicated that one of the things that Macs will have is the same kind of intelligence 
and devices that you find on iPhones and iPads, you know, uh, mm-hmm. machine learning accelerators and, and image uh, processors so that the, the Mac becomes more personalized and more intelligent. Um, and then another big uh, push for Apple is privacy. So instead of having to send a lot of uh, uh, voice recognition or other object recognition stuff up to the cloud, uh, more of it could be done locally on uh, the device and uh, to further improve privacy for not just iPhones and iPads, but now Macs. Well, that's actually kind of interesting. I mean, uh, well, ecosystem really does apply when you're talking to Apple, and uh, if you've got uh, you know if you've got one if you've got more than one device, they're already uh, all set to to work together pretty much. Um, I gotta imagine having a Mac as a as an almost a home server slash home PC would be a handy thing to have. Yeah, you can run more and more uh, intelligence locally, and and yeah. you know this is a a, a general trend. Everybody's talked about you know everything going up to the cloud, but even within the cloud, they're pushing more stuff to the edge. We talked talk, talking about edge computing and edge clouds, um, and so uh, intelligent edge devices like your uh, intelligent car or an intelligent um, you know laptop. Uh, is is part of that ecosystem. And I think that's where Apple's seeing it. They're going to put more intelligence in the Mac uh, that's, you know, more machine learning and more AI processing and to make the Mac a more personalized and intelligent device. Pretty cool. Yeah. So anything about the uh, ARM, Mac, or supercomputer issues that I haven't asked you about that you thought was fascinating? Uh, well, it, it just shows that the ARM ecosystem is still very vibrant. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, as you noted out, uh, ARM is, it hasn't been the first time ARM has been in a supercomputer, and it's certainly not the first. And ARM is well established at Apple. Um, but, uh, you know, they continue to roll on and, and gain more and more traction in more and more markets. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's on a roll. And I have to say, you know, the x86 is uh got to look out for it because uh even with uh you know renewed uh, health from amd and and their compute uh platforms and their uh epic processors and all that um you know arm is is getting to be a, a tough competitor in these spaces so i can't you you have to keep an eye on it all right. So uh, I promised I would do this. Uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, hitting all of these um, all, all these conferences in a virtual manner these days. And um, I don't know about you. Uh, as a journalist, I and other journalists, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to dress ourselves without the free T-shirts we get. What are we going to do, Kevin? Um, you know, you may actually have to rely on Amazon and have them. And so maybe that's maybe that's the next thing. I mean, uh, the conferences need to have uh, virtual T-shirts. Maybe maybe three uh, D printed your own shirts uh, kits at home. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you get, you know was, maybe maybe it's the return of the iron on T-shirt uh, logos. And you oh can, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Own, yeah, build your own uh, T-shirt kits. Man, I would have to find my iron. Actually, I'm sure my wife could find it for me real fast. (laughs) All right, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Take care, Brian. 
So, during the previous discussion with Kevin, we mentioned the new Exascale supercomputers that are coming up. I said they were Summit and Sierra. That's wrong. Summit and Sierra were the two fastest existing supercomputers. They're the ones that just dropped down to number two and number three. There are three Exascale computers being created now. Kevin identified one called Frontier. A second is El Capitan. Those two will rely on processors from AMD. A third, called Aurora, will be using Intel processors. When they are installed in a couple of years, they should each far eclipse everything else on the top 500 list. By the way, there's a brand new entry in the top 500 list for the most energy-efficient supercomputer. It's the MN3 from Preferred Networks, which built its own custom processor. It achieves a jaw-dropping 21.1 gigaflops per watt. In terms of straight-up processing performance, it's still only number 395 on the list. The next best in terms of power efficiency is another new system called Selene, which was built by NVIDIA using its own GPUs and AMD CPUs. It debuted as the seventh most powerful supercomputer. Every year, EE Times does a feature called the Silicon 60. Well, we're not going to do it this year. This year, we're going to do the Silicon 100. Our colleague Peter Clark is the editor of the Silicon 100. We asked him to put together a brief explanation of what it is. And you won't hear me ask him about AI, but pretend you did. Well, the Silicon 100 is EE Times' list of startup companies which its journalists think are worth keeping an eye on in the year to come. So we're looking for companies that are uh, basing their, their, their offering to, to, to industry on some significant hardware technology development. I'm glad you mentioned AI because, because AI, machine learning, is an absolute phenomenon at the moment. Um, it's similar to the explosion of, of microprocessor designs that, that went on back in the 1970s. And I'm uh, fully expecting we'll see a lot more quantum computing companies coming through in the years to come. We may think of this time as a sort of golden age when a, a great big horde of, of, of startups has been created to try and move uh, societies wealth and well-being forward based on information and communications technology. We expect to have the Silicon 100 online on Sunday. You'll find it at eetimes.com. It'll be in our special projects section. It'll be published as a PDF. We invite you to register for your free copy. Find out if your favorite startup made the cut in EE Times Silicon 100 Class of 2020. The evolution of automobiles includes the steady accretion of electronic subsystems for entertainment systems, for engine control, for braking, for driver assist technologies, one after the other. Almost all of these subsystems were created by different subcontractors. Naturally, few of these systems ever communicated with any other. And for a long time, that was fine because most of them didn't need to talk to each other. Until they did, and then automakers discovered it was difficult to stitch all these subsystems together into a coherent and safe whole. Tesla demonstrated the advantages of building a car from the ground up, including having a unified electronic system. Famously, Tesla can improve the performance of almost any aspect of its vehicles, 
and even introduced new features simply by sending out software updates over the air. Conventional car OEMs have been scrambling to pull this off too, but they haven't been able to do Tesla-like whole car upgrades. It's because their vehicle architecture is tied to legacy electronic systems. Mercedes-Benz and BMW had been allied on such efforts, but this week, Mercedes-Benz decided to farm out its entire compute stack to NVIDIA. EE Times International Editor Junko Yoshida has become an expert in automotive electronics, so we got together to discuss what's going on with Mercedes and NVIDIA. The first Mercedes vehicles to rely entirely on NVIDIA will hit the market in 2024. That seems like a long way away, but in the context of the automotive market, that's pretty aggressive. So one of the interesting things about the automotive industry in particular is that they've got long development cycles, right? That's right. It's uh, it's really as long as four years. And, um, you know, this is sort of unheard of. If you think about smartphones or PCs, you know, the, the, the automotive industry lives in a different planet, in my opinion. And <laughs> not only that, because most auto companies don't design their own chips, their future is in the hands of the system system on chip designers. Mm-hmm. So this in this case that um, you know the, the actually I was telling you before that uh, in the era of autonomous vehicles and including uh, ADAS, um, more and more more and more electronic components uh, come into the picture that traditional auto companies were scrumbling to get the uh, partnership done partnership with this other tech companies or that other automotive companies or with this tier ones, that complex web of partnerships around automotive um, autonomous vehicles has been really horrendous, actually. Um, You know, every reporter covered every little deal in the last five years will be thoroughly confused who is in bed Mm. with whom. So in this case, now we find out uh, Mercedes-Benz, I thought that they were going to get to know with uh, BMW last year. Now they said, okay, we're going to dump BMW. We're going to bet a whole house on NVIDIA. That's the story of this week's announcement, I think. So normally there's a, a, a complex web of relationships uh, with uh, the different car manufacturers amongst themselves right and with their suppliers right. and they they've been hedging their bets because they've got these big long development cycle cycles, right? that's correct yeah. so so if you you know bet on the wrong horse in 2016 yeah that affects your your product in 2019 2 2020 you so may on. you may not even have a vehicle that you can sell if this right, thing doesn't right. work. Especially more and more functions are getting into the system on chip. This yeah. is going to be a really really hard decision they have to make, right? So yeah. when you say that uh, that it's a big story that yeah. that Mercedes Benz has decided to uh, go with Nvidia alone, yes, uh, that. It really is a big deal, then, huh? It it is. It is a big. It's it's a courageous. It's a very courageous thing to do, uh, for Mercedes Benz. 
but they probably didn't have any other choice. But for NVIDIA, <laughs> it's a great news, right? It's, it's really a huge deal because they can actually strut their stuff, not only about one little chip design in, but this is a story about NVIDIA also providing the whole AV stack. You know, the, the engineering software development skills that the NVIDIA has. Also, AI experts, they have developed on their GPUs for years and years. I mean, it's sort of like paying off. The NVIDIA is transcending itself from being just a chip supplier to become a solution provider to as big a brand as Mercedes-Benz. It's a great news for NVIDIA. Now, NVIDIA isn't entirely unknown in the automotive market. They've they've sold into the automotive market before, right? Yeah. Right. So they're not an unknown quantity. However, NVIDIA has been always the cutting edge. So that means that their solutions are not most common uh, engine for ADAS, for example. That Mm -hmm. department is really entirely left to uh, mobile eye, which is part of the Intel now, mm-hmm. right? They get the lion's share. NVIDIA has bet the horse on the AV several years ago, and mm-hmm. now they're backing into ADAS. This deal with Mercedes-Benz, their first car coming out, 2024, we don't know which, when, which quarter of 2024, they didn't say, but that will be the ADAS. So there's now nothing new. The, yeah, it's, it's not an AV, it's an ADAS. That's interesting. I mean, you've, you've reported before yeah. uh, autonomy and assisted driving are really two separate disciplines. They're not they're not necessarily related right. and yeah. one doesn't you can't necessarily extrapolate one to the other. Yeah. Yeah, that's my belief. But I think in this case, uh, uh, they're, 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 once again, they're trying to blow the line. And I, I, I spotted this a quote that I was taking my notes while the press conference. I spotted this quote, autonomous assisted features. And I just put oh, my yeah, pen that's down. A blend, isn't it? Yeah. What, what is that? Is that ADAS or is it an autonomous vehicle? Is that a Tesla's autopilot? And I think it's ADAS. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um. We've heard uh, they, they've used the the phrase uh, it, it's a it's a marketing buzzword a supercomputer on wheels do we uh, do we take that seriously? Um, well, I take it seriously. They've got a lot of computing power in this uh, solution, but uh, no, it's uh, it's it became <laughs> a, such a marketing cliche. Yeah, but who cares no. about supercomputer on wheels? You know, I want my cars to work safely. I don't know if every car needs a supercomputer. I'm not sure. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, so we can expect um, we can expect this in uh, the 2024. Right. So the 2025 model. Yeah. Which would come out in 2024. Right? Yeah. We didn't say this up front, but the, this is the play for Mercedes-Benz to play a catch-up with Tesla. Uh, right. The whole point about supercomputer or single uh, processing architecture for a vehicle, it's all about um, they want to do the, uh, they, they use, a, 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 once again, a, another marketing buzzword, software-defined car. What mm-hmm. it is, the uh, over-the-air software upgrades. 
that's what they're going for. You know, they, they've been able to do the updates on the infotainment units, but mm. no conventional car companies has been able to pull off this entire car upgrades. Right. So this is new. But one thing, Brian, let me tell you this. Uh, mm-hmm. This is this is what Jensen said during the press conference. Well, this will be uh, the first time your car that your twenty-year-old car. I mean, we're talking about way down in the future, right? Twenty-year-old car. Outside, it's a classic looking, but inside, there's the latest features and functions. You know, so that was like his pitch, but. I don't know. I mean, it's like, okay, if you call it the classic, maybe it's a classic car and it still works with the guy with got all the other things. Maybe, but I don't know if it is a really good business model for Mercedes Benz. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got to tell you, so my daughter just bought, uh, we just bought for her, helped her buy a, um, a 1992 Pontiac Bonneville. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) So, you know, and I'm just thinking, oh my, if we could just get a, Get a, a USB slot into that beast. <laughs> that alone would be something, wouldn't it? So I can, I, so I, you know, I, in a way, I'm kind of, uh, I have a very sharp appreciation for the notion of like uh, having it be 2048, yeah. and you know, I have, and I'm driving around my 2028 BMW, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and still being happy with it. Well, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks, Junko. Well, thank you. It was fun. Junko's story is on our website at eetimes.com. We also have a view on the news from our seriously skeptical columnist, Colin Barnden. Same website, same URL. And of course, we've got direct links on the podcast webpage too. Barnden says the deal is yet another indication that the major automotive manufacturers are backing off plans to make autonomous passenger vehicles. After looking forward at where technology is going, we like to wrap the podcast celebrating a great moment in technology history. So, step right this way, Sherman. This week, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to June 15th, 1987. That's the official birthday of the GIF format, which the people who actually created it initially mispronounced as GIF. As more than one exceedingly clever person has noted, it's the graphics interchange format, not the giraffes interchange format. There's a GIF for that too. In fact, there are hundreds of rimshot GIFs. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The guy who led the team that created the format was Steve Wilhite. He and his team were all working at CompuServe at the time. Wow, that was 33 years ago. Only 33 years ago, but that's long enough that some of you may have never experienced CompuServe or AOL or Prodigy or my personal fave, Genie, which hardly anybody heard of even at the time. They were service providers, uh, sort of like Xfinity or Fios, only not like Xfinity or Fios, in that you sometimes had to wait just for text to load, which is kind of the point of GIFs. An image could take forever. So the idea at CompuServe was to develop a format for compressing images. And so the graphics interchange format was born. 
The term meme wouldn't come into vogue until later, but in the early to mid-1990s, memes were invented, and most of them were, of course, GIFs. Check out the podcast webpage for The Dancing Baby and Dancing Hamsters. There's a lot of dancing in those first memes. So anyway, here's something I'd completely forgotten. GIFs used to be click once, play once. The ability to loop wasn't created until 1995 by Netscape, which I just realized is yet another archaic reference. Netscape was a browser that gradually kind of mutated into Firefox. Anywho, by the 2000s, the GIF format was eclipsed by other animation techniques, one of which was Flash. Legendary Apple CEO Steve Jobs hated Flash so vigorously that in 2010, he even wrote a lengthy screed trashing it. All the while, the GIF format was steadily regaining favor on social media for memes. In 2015, Facebook added support for GIFs, which by then had become the main vehicle for animated memes. Since then, the usage of GIFs mutated even more. They're now used in smartphone conversations as sort of animated emoji. In other words, not as commentary, but as part of the conversation itself. Now, if only we could figure out a way to adapt GIFs to radio. We'll have to think on that. So that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending June 26th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms. But if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This week, GIFs. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspencore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. Segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.